I do want to remind you that at this time in our study, that the ten northern tribes of Israel have already gone off into captivity. And now we're getting to the point where this southern nation of Judah is going to go off into captivity. And we end it, as we saw last week, with Manasseh, who was the king. Manasseh, who was the son of Hezekiah, Hezekiah was a great king. You recall that Hezekiah was in Jerusalem. When the Assyrians came to Jerusalem, they surrounded Jerusalem, and they were threatening Hezekiah. They were ready to destroy the city, but the Lord brought an angel to destroy the Assyrian army. So as that took place, the Assyrians are declining in power, and now there is a faraway empire called Babylon that is beginning to rise to power. And you recall that we saw that Hezekiah... He was told that he was going to die, but he prayed to the Lord. The Lord said, I'm going to extend your life for 15 years. And during that time, two things happened. One was some uh, embassies, ambassadors from Babylon came to visit Hezekiah. Hezekiah showed them the kingdom, all of the treasuries of the kingdom. And Isaiah made a prophecy and said that, first of all, that they're going to come in and take you away captive, your choice men away captive. And um, we'll talk about that next week when we see that Babylon comes into Judah and begins to take the people away captive and the choice men of Judah away captive. And then the second thing that's going to happen, all the treasuries that you showed these guys, they're making notes and they're going to take those treasuries away because they know that they're there. So it was Hezekiah that was told, it's not going to happen in your lifetime, but it will happen uh, later. So uh, it would, as we are going to see, Hezekiah told that about 100 years before the first wave of captivity comes in. But during that time, the second major thing that happened was that Manasseh was born. And Manasseh was the longest reigning king of Judah, but he was also the most wicked king of Judah. And it was Manasseh that uh, plunged the nation deep, deep into idol worship to where the Lord said, that's it. Um, There had been idol worship in the land, even though the house of Judah did a little bit better than the house of Israel. The house of Israel, you recall, up north, those ten northern tribes, starting with Jeroboam, there was 19 kings and every single one of those kings were evil kings. So they go off into captivity in 722 B.C., right? And then all of a sudden, Judah continues. Judah had some good kings, and they had some terrible kings. And Manasseh was terrible, plunged the nation deep full of idol worship. Idols are set in the temple, Solomon's temple. We also know that they were involved in witchcrafts and soothsaying. They were passing their children on the arms of Moloch there in the valley of Gehenna. And uh, it was a terrible, terrible time. And the Lord said, because of the sins of Manasseh, you're going to go off into captivity. So now we're going to pick it up where the last good king of Judah is on the scene. Again, Second Kings, and in chapter 22, we read that Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, and the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand. And so we see Josiah comes on this scene at the age of eight years old. And um, he's on the scene because his father, uh, as we ended last week, Amon, was assassinated. He only reigned for a couple years. Here is uh, his son coming on the throne. He's the last of the good kings, as I mentioned uh, to you, before they go off into captivity. And he's going to bring revival to Judah here. 
And 2 Chronicles chapter 34 tells us that when he was 16 years old, he began to seek the Lord. And what he begins to do, as we're going to read, is he's going to get rid of the high places of false worship and all the idols and the wooden images that are there in Judah. We read in verse 3, Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Saphon, the scribe, and the son of Aaliah, and the son of Meshalom, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hands of those doing the work who are are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house, to carpenters and builders and masons, to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made of with them of the money delivered into their hands because they deal faithfully. And so what we see here is when Josiah was 26 years old, he, he decides to repair the temple, um, much like what we saw in 2 Kings chapter 12 when King Jael Ash did the same thing. And he says to uh, the high priest here, um, Helkiah, he says, listen, uh, we're going to repair the temple. My grandfather Manasseh left it in disarray. Uh, the temple has deteriorated, and uh, we're going to collect the money. Then you're going to give the money to the masons and the builders. And we see that there was trust in them, that they dealt faithfully, that they would take that money and they would use it as they were supposed to in making the repairs. Now, you remember back in Second Kings chapter 12 that when it was the priests that were to collect the money, for a long time, they were spending the money. They weren't being faithful to that. Um, and then it was the change that was made that is going to go directly to the builders. And so they are mentioned in a very positive light here, those who are making repairs to the temple. And I just want to say this. I am so thankful for, for those who come and help here and, and uh, minister here in that way. It's such a tremendous blessing to us as we do repairs here, as we remodel, as we do different things here at the church. And I'm very blessed by it, and I know that you are as well. But we continue to read in verse 8, Then Helkiah the priest said to Saphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Helkiah gave the book to Saphan, and he read it. So Saphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who will do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Saphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Helkiah the priest has given me a book. And Saphan read it before the king. So what happens is, is the money's collected, given to the builders. The builders are in there. They're doing the work of repairing the temple. And I just picture in the corner under probably a lot of trash there, there all of a sudden is a book that they found. And they take it and they blow the dust off of it. And it's almost like as you read this, they're wondering, what is this? And it's a book of the law. And God's word had not been in the land to where you know, here is the only copy that they have, and it's found buried under a bunch of stuff, and they bring it out, and Saphan, the scribe, goes to the king and begins to read it. And this absolutely amazes me as we look at this, that the word of God had diminished so much in Judah. That's how, you know, bad it was, the spiritual condition of the nation. So the book of the law is given to the king, and it is read before the king. And, and I just want to say to you and to me that it's very important that 
you and I, and you know this, be reading our Bibles. Don't let dust just collect on your Bible. Don't just stick it in a corner and never read it. But we are to take it out and be reading the Word of God. And what we're going to see here as we continue reading is there's revival that comes to the land. We're going to see that Josiah is going to restore true worship here. And for revival to happen um, in a church, in your family, in your life individually, that there needs to be, first of all, for that revival to happen, a discovering of the Word of God. As we are reading the book of Acts, what we see in the book of Acts consistently and continually is this, that whenever the word of God was spreading and the gospel and, and the people were discovering the truth of the word of God, that's when revival was taking place. And we'll take note of that as we go through the book of Acts. But let's continue in verse 11. It happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Helkiah the priest, a um, Ahikam, the son of Saphan, and Akbor, the son of Melchiah, Saphan, the scribe, and Ahaziah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning these words in this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So we see in verse 13, not only for revival to take place, is there a discovering of the word of God, but secondly, there needs to be a commitment to the word of God. And Josiah reads this, and it cut him to the to the heart is what it does. It, he tore his clothes because the word of God is like a two-edged sword piercing our hearts. And, and that's what the word of God is to do. And of course, we have seen that again in the book of Acts on Sunday that as it was the apostles and as it was Stephen that was addressing that religious council, giving them the truth of the gospel, speaking of Jesus, giving them the truth of God's word. Peter was a man of the word of God. And as he was quoting from the Old Testament, it says that it cut them to the heart. It was one that it pierced their hearts. And, and we know that as we read the word of God, the same thing happens to us. So revival to happen in this nation, for revival to happen uh, in a church, revival to happen in your family and in your life individually, number one, for you who like to jot down notes, is there's a discovering of the word of God, and secondly, a commitment to the word of God as we have seen. So Hilkiah the priest and Iakim, Achar and these guys, they want to see this prophetess, uh, Holdah, in verse 14, the wife of Shalom, the son of uh, Tykva, and the son of Haras, and keeper of the wardrobe, she dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. So they go see this woman and seek her out, who's a prophetess, who was led by the Spirit of God, sensitive to the voice of God she was. And I just want to encourage you guys, you husbands, listen. When your wife is a godly wife, and she's one that is committed to the Word of God, listen to her. When she senses that the Lord is speaking to her, when the Lord is speaking to her because she's reading the word of God, when she is just being spoken to because the spirit of God is speaking to her, I know that my wife Sue, when she tells me that the Lord's been speaking to me about this, I've been reading the word of God, and this is what you know he has said to me, and my spiritual antenna goes up on that because I know that she can hear from the Lord. And, um, and I want to encourage you guys that as your wives go to this conference and as the Lord is speaking to them, encourage them, bless them, 
You be blessed as they share with you what the Lord has taught them. And so they, they go to this prophetess and she speaks to them. She said to them in verse 15, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Till the man that you, uh, who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the words of the book in which king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. Verse 18, But for as the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. And so she tells them that judgment is going to come, but not during the days of Josiah. But I want you to take note of verse 19. I think there's some things there that are worth our considering as we read this. We see three things that are spoken about Josiah that are good characteristics that I think that you and I should have uh, as uh, we are children of God. First of all, that concerning this one that that sent you guys he she's speaking of king josiah because his heart was tender that is soft and may you and i always have a tender and a soft heart before the lord we need to have a tender heart not a hard heart but a tender heart because you see a tender heart a soft heart is a heart that is teachable a heart that is desiring to hear from the lord a heart that is one that is sensitive to the voice of the lord so my prayer is is that for First of all, that all of us, that we would have a tender heart, a soft heart before the Lord, not a hard heart. You never want to harden your heart to the word of God. Because sometimes what can happen in our lives is we can read the word of God and we say amen to this. But when it comes to that, I'm not so sure about it, Lord, or I don't want to accept it, or I don't want to be obedient to that. And that's a hardened heart. We always want to in every area of our lives, when it comes to everything concerning the word of God, have a soft heart, have a tender heart. Second of all, he humbled himself before the Lord. May that be us, humbling ourselves before the Lord. I think that as we soften our hearts and have a tender heart, we will humble ourselves before the Lord. We don't want to be prideful before the Lord. We don't want to be arrogant before the Lord, but humbled before the Lord. And then thirdly, he wept over the sins of the nation. He was brokenhearted. He realized as this word was being read to him that we have not kept the commandments of the Lord. We have not kept the word of the Lord. And he was grieving over the sins of of the nation. And I pray that we would grieve and weep over the sins of the nation that we see. A nation that is declining spiritually, morally. We see it all around us. We've been talking about it quite extensively, haven't we? And I hope and that as we do, that it would grieve us and cause us to be praying for our leaders because we're commanded as God's children and as Christians to be praying for our leaders to be praying for a nation. But as we see all the depravity and the immorality and pushing God out of everything and not wanting to mention God, getting further away from the Lord, that we would weep over the, 
the sins of our nation. Weep over the sins of, of you know, our family and family members, um, that we would weep if there's sin in our own lives. And that was the heart of Josiah. So three characteristics that we can take note of that are very, very important there. In chapter 23, now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. And then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes. And with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. Here's a public reading of the word of God. You know, it's interesting as you look at scripture that the first public reading before God's people was in Joshua chapter 8. The Lord told them that when you come into the promised land, that there's going to be a reading of this covenant, the book of the covenant, the book of the law, and we read about that in Joshua chapter 8. The next time that we hear about or read about a public reading is more than 500 years later, and that is in Second Chronicles chapter 34 that tells us that during Jehoshaphat's reign there was a uh, public reading. Actually, that was in Second Chronicles chapter 17. And then in Second Chronicles chapter 34, 250 years after Jehoshaphat, we have Josiah here with this public reading that has taken place. And we see that the revival, as it begins to happen, as I told you, that there is a discovery of the Word of God, first of all. There is a commitment to the Word of God. But thirdly, for revival to happen, that we need to stand on the Word of God. We see here that King Josiah stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord. In other words, the king stood before the people and publicly declared his commitment to obey the Word of God. And parents, any of us, when we make a stand and we publicly make that declaration that I am a man or woman, that I believe in the word of God, you're going to see that it's going to really impact people. Sometimes it will impact them in a negative way. Sometimes they'll come against us. Oftentimes they will or dismiss you or make fun of you. But oftentimes, it will encourage others. When you stand for truth, and when you stand for the Word of God, it encourages others that we can do the same thing. And that's what I hope that we do, as, as we stand for truth, as we stand for the Word of God. And I know that I hear stories of our young people up on the college campus that are standing for the Word of God, even though they take the hits, and it encourages me. So revival to happen, stand on the word of God. And that's what the people did, as he did that. And then it says at the end of verse 3, all the people took a stand for the covenant as well. So revival happening, encouragement is happening as we keep the word of God and then as we stand on the promises of God, as we make a stand for the truth of God's word in our lives to others that are linked to us in our lives. In verse 4, And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priest of the second order, and the doorkeeper, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal and Asherah and for the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes to Bethel. So 
here we see that they took all the idols that were there in the temple that was put there during the days of Ahaz and also his grandfather Manasseh. And they take them out. Josiah orders it. And they burn them there in the Valley of Kidron. The Valley of Kidron is just east of the, the uh, temple where it was, that valley, um, and then goes uh, the Mount of Olives to the east of it. So you can stand on the Mount of Olives today and you're looking at the brook Kidron, the Valley of Kidron, and then you're looking at the Temple Mount area where Solomon's temple was. So that's where they were burning all of this and taking the ashes to Bethel uh, up north to recall that Bethel was what? That was the place where Jeroboam had made that temple dedicated to the golden calf that the people in the house of Israel were going to worship at. Also, Bethel was the place in the book of Genesis that Jacob, when he was running from his brother Esau, that he had a dream that night of angels ascending and descending, and that God reaffirmed the covenant that would go through his grandfather, start with his grandfather Abraham, through his father Abraham, Isaac, and then him, Jacob. And all of this is going to belong to you and your descendants, Jacob. And Jacob, he had pulled up a rock for a pillow. Pretty rough, huh? And he had that dream, and he called it Bethel, which is the God's house, or the house of God is what it means. And it ended up being a place of, of idol worship. And so here, with the idols being burned, they take them up uh, there to Bethel. As we read in verse 4, we continue, Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah, in the places all around Jerusalem, to those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun, to moon, to the constellations, to all the hosts of heaven. So they are involved in all kinds of, of false worship, weren't they? In the uh, worship of the stars and the moons and all of this. Uh, verse 6, And they brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kedron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kedron and ground its ashes and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. Then he tore down the, the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the women, uh, wooden images. So here, um, remember when we studied Solomon's temple that was built, there was three levels of buildings around the temple for the priests. It ended up that the priests were using up uh, those places for a place of prostitution. So he gets rid of all the perverted persons, all the immorality that's going on there around the temple. That's how bad things were. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also he broke down the high places at the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. And they defiled Tophethen, which is in the valley of the son of Heman, that's to the south of Jerusalem, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire of Moloch. So the valley of Heman, or Gehenna, you might see as well, was to the south that ran east and west. And it's interesting, you can go there today, and because of the history of Ahaz and Manasseh, passing their sons on the altar of Moloch and, and um, sacrificing their children. Today, if you go there, it's a very beautiful place. They made it a park. And, and they don't like to mention that in their history, that that's where that took place. They, make a, they made a park there for children. 
that the children can go and play in. It's very beautiful to go and walk in that park, kind of ironic. But here, that's where it took place. And we read in verse, um, as we read in verse 11, he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the courts, and burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down and pulverized there, and he threw their dust into the brook Kedron. And then the king defiled the high places that were the east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption. That's the Mount of Olives, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians for Shemash, and the abomination of the Moabites, and for Malcolm, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones of men. And moreover, the altar that was at Bethel in the high place, which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, both the altar and the high place he broke down, and he burned the high place and crushed it in the powder and burned the wooden image. And so we see here that this is a fulfillment here, what we're reading, of 1 Kings chapter 13, some 300 years previous to that prophecy. And revival would begin to spread up north here as he is um, going up north where Israel was, and the reason that he can do that is because the Assyrians are weak at this point. So he could go up and kind of take care of what's at Bethel and some of the places of idol worship up there. We continue to read and see this as uh, we read um, in verse uh, 16. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there in the mountain. He sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it and to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. And then he said, What gravestones is this I see? So the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. So that's the fulfillment that I was talking about of First Kings chapter 13. And he said, Let him alone. Let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone and the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria. Samaria... You recall the capital, the ten northern tribes. We also saw Samaria in the book of Acts. Remember last Sunday, Samaria the, the, in, um, where revival was taking place, where Philip, after persecution, came to Jerusalem, that it fanned the Christians out into different areas of Judea and Samaria, and, the, and he went to the city of Samaria, and revival has broken out. Now we're going to see that the Lord is going to speak to Philip this Sunday and tell him to go to the desert. And some very important lessons. So make sure that you come on Sunday and we'll study that. Verse 20, And he executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them and returned to Jerusalem. And then the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judge Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the days of Judah. Now isn't that remarkable? That intrigues me. Think about this. The Passover, which the Lord said was to be observed perpetually, continually, and annually, Exodus chapter 13. And here we're being told, and not had been observed in this way since the days of the judges. Now, 
there seems to be a contradiction because you can go to Second Chronicles and Hezekiah that he observed Passover, but it is believed, and we'll get there, that it was a simple observance. Here, Josiah won a full observance of the Passover. You recall that during the days of Jesus, the second temple, that Passover was where tens of thousands of sheep would be sacrificed. Matter of fact, that Josephus, the Jewish historian, as you read his accounts, that during the days of Jesus, that the Romans wanted to take a census. They wanted to see how many people were coming into Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And so the religious leaders, what they did is they said, listen, we don't want to count the people. Please don't have us count the people because of what happened when David counted the people. Remember at the end of Second Samuel that there was a plague that came through? And so they said, can we count the sheep that are being sacrificed for Passover? And so what they counted was about 250,000 sheep that were sacrificed there for Passover during the days of Jesus, during that time of the second temple that was taking place. And so they believed that there's probably about two and a half million people that were in, packed in the city of Jerusalem during Passover. So Josiah here has a Passover that's a huge celebration that is, you know, something that hadn't been seen since the days of the judges. We're talking about David. The man after God's own heart didn't have a Passover like this. Solomon didn't. None of the other kings did. But Josiah was so desiring to bring true worship back into the land that he has this great big Passover celebration that has taken place. Passover was to be a reminder, wasn't it, that God had brought them out of Egypt, freed them from the bondage of Egypt. And that's why the Lord said you are to do this year after year at this time so you'll never forget how I have freed you, brought you into the land. And you recall that as we have seen in our study of First and Second Kings, that as the prophets came to God's people, that the prophets would say oftentimes, and you really pick this up when you read the book of Isaiah, when you read the book of Jeremiah, that the Lord was saying to them, Turn away from the idols and from the false worship. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt and I've given you this land. So it was to be a remembrance of what God had done for them, but yet they forgot. And the Lord said, you forgot how I've done that, how I've given you the land, how I've blessed you. We as Christians, one of the things that we do is we go to the Lord's table, don't we? And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And I was thinking about this because over the last month I've talked to uh, a couple ministry leaders that were saying, oh, communion isn't important. It it doesn't save us. It doesn't bring salvation. I, I know that. But Jesus did say, do this often in remembrance of me. And it's important that we do that, that as we do on the first Sunday of the month, And as we do on the first Wednesday of the month here at Calvary Chapel, we take communion because we want to remember what Jesus did for us, don't we? That we want to remember the new covenant that we have entered into. And as Jesus said, that this is my body broken for you and my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. So it's important, I believe, that we do that. And, and I would encourage you, even you dads you know, or parents, don't be afraid to take communion at home, to lead your family in communion, and to remember what the Lord has done for you. And so that is something that I think is important that we continually do. We don't do it just as an exercise or because it's just tradition that we do. We do it because we want to remember and be at all once again. And it's a time of worship what Jesus Christ has done for us so we don't forget. So thank you, Lord, that you died for me. 
And it, it brings us to that place of remembrance as we have entered into that new covenant. So here it was forgotten all that they had done. And verse 23, but in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. And moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums, spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law, which were written in the book of Hilkiah the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. So Josiah is seen in a very positive light what he brought to the nation um, as he was a great king. And then verse 26, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with his anger which arose against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen in the house of which I said, My name shall be there. So the sins of Manasseh permeated the land so much that they never fully recovered from that. And the Lord once again speaks of this impending judgment, which is coming very soon, as we're going to see. Now, also, as you read the book of Jeremiah, this was revival that I spoke about, but it wasn't real revival that was happening in the hearts of the people. It was happening in Josiah's heart, and it was happening to some of the people, but for a lot of the people, Jeremiah, it was more reforms. You see, there's a difference between reforms and true revival. And as you read Jeremiah, Jeremiah said the people, they're uncircumcised of heart, that there hasn't been a change of heart. Outwardly, there was an expression of reforms that were going on in the land. They were going through the motions, but they very quickly fall back into idol worship. And so we see that take place. And I think there's an important consideration in that. And that is, it's more than just reform. Sometimes I'll get people that say, well, you know, I I think it'd be good for me to go to church or, you know, uh, to, you know, do this religious act or whatever it might be. Is there, uh, you know, true revival in your heart where you've discovered the word of God and the gospel and you've turned to that, you're committed to the word of God, you know, that you stand on the promises of God, that you've gotten rid of all the idolatrous things out of your life. Are those things really taking place, true revival, or is it just reforms? I'll just go through the motions. I'll just do this. I do it because it makes my wife happy. I'll do it because, you know, I think it'd be good. I've had many parents tell me, I think it'd be good for my kids to learn some morals. And just going through reforms rather than real revival. And that's what was happening to the people here. Is It was more reforms that was taking place than revival. And you see that very clearly as you consider Jeremiah is ministering at this time. His ministry starts during the days of Josiah. Matter of fact, I believe, if I am correct, Jeremiah's father is Helkiah. And uh, the priest, he comes from a priestly family, Helkiah that we just read about. In verse 28, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? And in his days, Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And king Josiah went against him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. And then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, 
and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. So here we see with the Assyrians declining in power, they're wanting to ally with Egypt to try to stop the powerful Babylonians. And we get more insight here in Second Chronicles that explains that it was the king of Egypt that's coming and passing through Israel. They're passing through, they're passing through the valley of Megiddo, and he told Josiah, don't meddle in this matter, just stay at home. But what Josiah did is he, he disguised himself, went to battle, and he ended up being killed. It was a battle that was not meant for him, the scripture indicates, and he ends up dying. Listen, not every battle or situation that we see in here is for us to do battle with. Be wise in the battles that you choose to get involved in. And make sure that you seek the Lord or you could end up getting hurt or being defeated because you ended up meddling in something that you shouldn't have. And that's what happened to Josiah here, and that's the indication of Scripture. They should have stayed in Jerusalem, let the Egyptians pass by, but for some reason he felt like he needed to disguise himself and go up and get involved in this which he shouldn't have when he should have stayed in Jerusalem and trusted the Lord. So be wise and choose the battles in which you get involved in. In verse 31, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutel, uh, Hamutol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all his fathers had done. Now Pharaoh uh, Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem and impose on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. And then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in his place of his father Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoahaz, it's about 609 B.C. The captivity is coming, the first wave of captivity very soon. And he is the son of Josiah. His real name we know from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, was Shalom. He um, reigned only three months. He was an evil king. Egypt is dominating Judah at this time. Judah is a buffer against Babylon, and Egypt imposes taxes on Judah and, um, and carry away here this king, and he dies in Egypt. So Pharaoh Necho, um, you know, puts Eliakim, king of um, Judah here, the brother of Jehoahaz, renames him Jehoiakim. He's a puppet king. And then Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. And he exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land, from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. And Jehoiakim was 25 years old, and when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jebudah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers have done. And so as we finish next week, what we're going to see is the house of Judah go off into captivity. And then we're going to talk about and see the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to come. So, Father, we thank you for this study. Thank you for those who have come out. And, Lord... As we see that and we talk about revival, that, Lord, um, that's my prayer for our nation, that revival will take place, that there be a turning away from our sins as a nation, that our leaders would 
Lord, humble themselves before you somehow. That, Lord, that the Christians of this nation would stand for what's right and what's true. We pray for leaders that, Lord, that they would realize we need you. And you're the one that has blessed our nation. And that there would be a great awakening that would happen. And there would be a turning to you and repenting from our immorality and depravity and, and Lord, hardness of heart against you. And I pray that there would be revival, Lord, always in the Christians here in our community, in our church, in our families, and in our hearts, Lord. And we see what revival is, a commitment to the Word of God. It's standing on the Word of God. It's getting rid of anything that is priority over you, Lord. And Lord, that you would be first in every area of our lives. And Lord, I pray that all of us, that that's our heart. And Lord, I pray if there is anyone that's here or out in a coffee shop that's never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, that it isn't about reforms or religion, it's about relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about a surrender to him, realizing that we have separated ourselves from God because all of us are sinners. But Jesus Christ came and died for you on Calvary's cross. And he took all of your sins upon himself on that cross. And he died for you because of his love for you. He was put into a grave and he rose again after three days. He conquered sin and death. And so the scripture says that salvation, justification, comes by just putting our faith and trust in Jesus, repenting, that is turning from the direction we're going and turning to Jesus. And if by chance anybody listening to this message that you've never done that, today is the day of salvation. As Romans says that if we believe in our heart the Lord Jesus and confess with our mouth that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And you can pray right where you're at tonight that Jesus come into my heart, be my personal Lord and Savior. I confess that I have sinned. I believe that you died on Calvary's cross for me that you died for all of my sins, forgive me, be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe that you are the Son of God and you were put into a grave and you rose again in your life. And I open up my heart to you right now. I surrender to you and Lord, help me to live for you all the days of my life. And Lord, I pray that we would be a light to others that as we stand for what is true, that we would all be encouraged and strengthened by that.